Welcome to the very first episode of Artists in the World, brought to you by Carnegie Museum of Art and WQED in Pittsburgh. I'm Jim Cunningham, WQED-FM's Artistic Director, and I'm joined by my co-host Dana Bishop-Root, the Director of Education and Public Programs at Carnegie Museum of Art. Thanks, Jim. Artists in the World features artists in conversation with people across disciplines, geographies, and life experiences. These conversations invite us to wonder, consider, feel, and stretch our imaginative capacities through relationships of thought, practices, intimacies, and research, bringing a world of thought to Pittsburgh and then extending the exchange back into the world and your home. This season of Artists in the World has been created alongside the 58th Carnegie International, the longest-running exhibition of contemporary international art in North America. I am so looking forward to listening to this conversation between poet Solmaz Sharif and writer and publisher Negar Azimi. Dana, after hearing the live conversation, what can you not stop thinking about? I'm so moved, Jim, by the way in which Solmaz invites us into what she names as her practice of devotional poetry. She talks about how she writes against the ready-mades, how she resists that there's a set number of shapes and ways of being and forms of living. She opens up the question about why artists are called on when we're in a state of emergency. As a poet, as an artist, as a human being, she says the emergency has already been happening. We are in it right now. She uses and thinks about her relationship to language, the restlessness of language, the transformative shapes that language can take as a way to look at emergency and be an emergency for the things we are not naming, the things we have not found yet. She talks about an experience when she was in an eclipse in Palo Alto, and she looked around her and noticed that everyone was looking up. And Solmaz says, and I looked across. Someone needs to keep guard of the eye level. Okay, I'm ready to listen. We open with Soreb Mohebi, curator of the 58th Carnegie International, followed by a poignant reading by Solmaz of her poetry, and then transition into a reflective conversation between Solmaz and Negar. Thanks, everyone, for being here tonight. Um, for those who have seen our exhibition in the Hall of Sculpture upstairs, there are 10 frescoes by Tuvan Tran. These works titled Colors of Gray are made from variations on the colors of the rainbow herbicides. These were a group of chemical agents. Most famous one is um, Agent Orange, but there are other agents. It's Agent White, Pink, Green, Blue, and Purple. They were used by the US military during the war in Vietnam, sprayed over millions of acres of Central Highlands, devastating plant, animal, and human life. An example of operational art, the agents extracted the word rainbow from the lexicon and turned it into a toxin. Solma Sharif's uh, book of poems, Look, lifts or um, expropriates a term from the United States Department of Defense's Dictionary of Military and Associated Terms. She shows how warfare is a linguistic operation in addition to a military one. Daily, I sit with the language they've made of our language, she writes in Personal Effects. 
At times, the poems examine the wounds of, warf of warfare in the English language. Looks at them closely, tends to them, licks them, and whispers them back into the world, where words are attempts to name the unnameable and to communicate what is left unsaid. Other times, they show the cruelty of the neutrality of terminology, directing words to meanings, feelings, that have been trained to glide over. I was reading a lot of Alejandra Pizarnik, um, Claris uh, Lispector, June Jordan, and Bernadette Mayer. But Soma Sharif took me, uh, Soma Sharif took me, um, made me, rather, to confront something that I've been repressing. That's a condition of exile. But in a way, all poetry is exile if it means refusing what is given and a desire for what is yet to be imagined. Her second book, Customs, did something else as well. It retooled one language to speak another one through it. There were moments when I could not figure out if I'm reading in Farsi or English. Poetry resides in the space in between the lines. And as the Salvadoran um, poet Roche Dalton said, poetry, like bread, is for everyone. After the reading, Somas will be joined by Negar Azimi, who somehow back in 2003 decided to think that I could write for the magazine Bidoon, that she edited it, and she still continu continues to do so. The truth is I couldn't write, but Negar could. But other than writing, I tried to learn from Nagar how to read. And all these years later, whenever I'm struck by a poem or a prose, I know that most likely she has already read it. Or as Santak would say, it's on her list. Nagar and I also collaborated on a presentation of Ferdinand Off's collection, which is on view in the Heinz Architecture Center as part of 58th Carnegie International. I'm also among many others who are eagerly waiting Nagar's forthcoming book that is a tale of the contemporary history of a twisted country, which I only know little fractions from, and I can't wait to finally get a fuller picture. Please join me in welcoming Solma Sharif. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sohrab, for that Beautiful introduction. Um, thank you, Dana, and everyone at Carnegie, and you all for, for joining me tonight. I will just read a few poems, and I think maybe I'll start with, with Look, um, which, as Sohrab mentioned, uh, uses terms from the Department of Defense's Dictionary of Military and Associated Terms. The DOD, for example, had redefined the word look to mean in mind warfare, the period during which a mind circuit is receptive of an influence. Look. It matters what you call a thing. Exquisite, a lover called me, exquisite. Whereas, well, if I were from your culture living in this country, said the man outside the 2004 Republican National Convention. I would put up with that for this country. Whereas I felt the need to clarify, you would put up with torture, you mean, and he proclaimed, yes. 
whereas what is your life? Whereas years after they look down from their jets and declare my mother's Obadon block probably destroyed, we walked by the villas, the faces of buildings torn off into dioramas and recorded it on a handheld camcorder. Whereas it could take as long as 16 seconds between the trigger pulled in Las Vegas and the Hellfire missile landing in Mazara Sharif, after which they will ask, did we hit a child? No, a dog, they will answer themselves. Whereas the federal judge at the sentencing hearing said, I want to make sure I pronounce the defendant's name correctly. Whereas this lover would pronounce my name and call me exquisite and lay the floor lamp across the floor, softening even the light. Whereas the lover made my heat rise, rise so that if heat sensors were trained on me, they could read my thermal shadow through the roof and through the wardrobe. Whereas, it's not like walking to the grocery store here. It's not like that. It's a rock. You know, it's a rock. It's kind of like acceptable to see that there and not. It was kind of like seeing a dead dog or a dead cat lying. Whereas I thought if he would look at my exquisite face or my father's, he would reconsider. Whereas, you mean I should be disappeared because of my family name? And he answered, yes, that's exactly what I mean, adding that his wife helped draft the Patriot Act. Whereas the federal judge wanted to be sure he was pronouncing the defendant's name correctly and said he had read all the exhibits, which included the letter I wrote to cast the defendant in a loving light. Whereas today we celebrate things like his transfer to a detention center closer to home. Whereas his son has moved across the country. Whereas I made nothing happen. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a thermal shadow. It appears so little and then vanishes from the screen. Whereas I cannot control my own heat, and it can take as long as 16 seconds between the trigger, the Hellfire missile, and a dog, they will answer themselves. Whereas a dog, they will say. Now, therefore, let it matter what we call a thing. Let it be the exquisite face for at least 16 seconds. Let me look at you. Let me look at you in a light that takes years to get here. Desired appreciation. Until now, now that I've reached my 30s, all my muse's poetry has been harmless, American and diplomatic. A learned helplessness is what psychologists call it, my docile desired state. I've been largely well-behaved and gracious. I've learned the doctors learned of learned helplessness by shocking dogs. Eventually, we things give up. Am I grateful to be here? Someone eventually asks if I love this country. In between the helplessness, the agents, the nation must administer a bit of hope, must meet basic dietary needs, ensure by tube, by nose, by throat, by other orifice, must fist bump a janitor, must muss up some kid's hair and let him loose around the Oval Office, click, click, could be cameras or the teeth of handcuffs closing to fix the arms overhead. There must be a doctor on hand to ensure the shoulders do not dislocate, and there must be Prince's Raspberry Beret. Click, click, could be Morse code tapped out against a coffin wall to the neighboring coffin. Outside my window, the snow lights 
cobalt for a bit at dusk, and I'm surprised every second of it. I had never seen the country like this. Somehow I can't say yes. This is a beautiful country. I have not cast my eyes over it before, that is, in this direction, is how John Brown put it when he looked out from the scaffold. I feel like I must muzzle myself, I told my psychiatrist. So you feel dangerous, she said, yes. So you feel like a threat, yes. Why was I so surprised to hear it? So that poem, Desired Appreciation, the title of which is a term from the Department of Defense's dictionary, feels like a bit of a pivot poem to The Ones in Customs, my second collection. Customs began, obviously, perhaps as, as a kind of uh, closer look at the customs of border patrols and of you know arrivals, terminals, and, and various ways of stamping entrance and um, gaining approval, and of course, as I was writing it, I was on tour for my, my first book and um, getting to see kind of how the sausage was made uh, in terms of literary production in the US in the 21st century. And so very quickly, it became also about the customs of writing at all, and writing in English in particular, and of writing in English in the US in the 21st century, and all the ways that we're kind of asked to quietly malform or domesticate or defang our speech um, in order to make ourselves um, more pleasant uh, citizens, um, model citizens uh, for the nation. Um, and desired appreciation, I guess, is one example of me kind of wrestling with that. And, and here's another one from Customs. It's called Patronage. They say willingness is what one needs to succeed. They say one needs to succeed. Our poets do not imagine a screaming audience. Our poets are used to padding, vinyl on the foldable chairs, bookshelves on casters moved aside to make space for them, a world polite for their words, a well-behaved, a world's behavior malformed, and they step in as one steps into a nursery and quiet calms the tantrum, attempts not to wake the sleeping, the milk drunk and burped babe, our poets coo, and beg to be placed in a large room. Cries ring, bull ring, lion through the ring of flames. Poets convince they are ringmaster. When it is with big brooms and bins, in fact, they enter to clear the elephant's gap. There was an inlet I pulled over once to watch the sunset, which was still another hour or so away, the light just low enough there to begin to change. I should have stayed, I should have stayed. A life of idol with money doing the work. A life beholden but bestowed. To make reformists of us all, even the fascists, especially the fascists. But he's a patron. But he makes a star of us, but he makes us of rank but he's a churchgoer, and they place their hands on him and pray and bountiful grow their wives' bellies, a bully for each family, exponential doom, singing to each other in the private gazebo of their youth. Now sing. I said what I meant, but I said it in velvet. I said it in feathers. 
And so one poet reminded me, remember what you are to them. Poodle, I said, and remember what they are to you, meat. Social skills training. Studies suggest, how may I help you, officer, is the single most disarming thing to say and not what's the problem. Studies suggest it's best to help reply, my pleasure, and not, no problem. Studies suggest it's best not to mention problem in front of power, even to say there is none. Gloria Steinem says women lose power as they age, and yet the loudest voice in my head is my mother. Studies show the mother we have in mind isn't the mother that exists. Mine says, what the fuck are you crying for? Studies show the baby monkey will pick the fake monkey with fake fur over the furless wire monkey with milk without contest. Studies show to negate something is to think it anyway. I'm not sad. I'm not sad. Studies recommend regular expressions of gratitude and internal check-ins. Enough, the wire mother says. History is a kind of study. History says we forgave the executioner. Before we mopped the blood, we asked, Lord Judge, have I executed well? Studies suggest, yes. What the fuck are you crying for, officer? The wire mother teaches me to say. While studies suggest, Solmaz, have you thanked your executioner today? I'm still internally reeling a little bit because I just learned before I came up here that there is a dentist in Brooklyn that has a copy of my book in the waiting room. <laughs> and it's, I, I, I think it's just the best thing I've, I've heard um, in my life. Um, consider gifting this book to your dentists. Um, there are true patrons, it turns out. Um, Amazing. <laughs> so I, I, I'm, my apologies to everyone that's like waiting for a root canal, you know, and then gets these kind of arsenic laced, you know, little ditties in their ear. Um, not very calming, but um, who needs calm, really? Um, I think I'll just close with this poem because I'm very eager to speak um, with one of my one of my favorite minds, uh, Negar, um, and it's a real honor to be here today um, with her and with you all. And um, this poem I wrote, uh, it's called Without Which, and I wrote it when I returned from my last trip home, I'll say, which was 2014, and every kind of bubble of nostalgia that I had uh, popped. You know, it was just one of those like brutal trips of like, this isn't, nothing of this is yours. You know, the idea of yours doesn't even exist, you know, absolute ego death. Um, and uh, I became, you know, I lost desire, and with the loss of desire, I lost language, and with the loss of language, I lost writing. And so I uh, had a lot of difficulty writing for a long time. And luckily, I'm a diagnostic poet, which might maybe why I'm in dentist's office. But um, so I decided to turn actually toward naming the brokenness of that, that speech and the kind of stuckness of, of that self. And so this poem is a, a bit of a longer one, and it 
there are echoes of its images throughout the, throughout the book because I return and recur um, obsessively as one, as one does in exile, without which. I have long loved what one can carry. I have long left all that can be left behind in the burning cities and lost, even lost, not cared much or learned to. I turned and looked and not even salt did I become. I have long not wanted much touch to turn away from and sleep asleep to bring the spoon up and slurp the soup I don't notice, gone. Like that, mostly, my life. Until I see something new. It does not happen much, except in the sense that everything is new. Three baby teeth and a washed clean baby food jar rattling as the drawer opens and closes or the train passes underneath or our bed bumps into the nightstand, into the wall, sliding across the room, chattering loose teeth I wanted to hold on to in a glass jar for what, for how long. Eventually, I pare down what of me I can't stand to look at, what of me I'd never want recognized by whoever will clear out my drawers, whoever does such a thing at the end of a life, who years wanted nothing, who was dead before she died. Before you came, I hadn't touched another in years. It was unintentional, frugal. Later, and the satisfaction of a small life closed in a single mind. Your thin drawer, pocket squares folded into neat stacks, wristwatches laid out into neat. You looked at me looking at your thing. I touched the satin squares. I touched the satin scar where you had been cut. Your healthy walking. Your wristwatch removed and ticking in this room. To watch you get dressed while still in bed is a little city where I'm most grateful to be alive, gently ticking, naked, leisurely, watching a slightly warped record turn its tiny hills, raising the needle too gently. Of is such a little city and can only hold so much. Of is the thing without which I would not be, of which I am without or away from. I am without the kingdom and thus of it. I am even when inside the kingdom without, smelling the dried dill, the day old slick fish, even my hems, wet with the gutters of the kingdom I am of, even so, more so out of it but without which I have learned to be. On the edges of the cities are boiling vats. The tanneries do not smell good, did not. The skins boiled to loosen the flesh, to pull clean what will be leather, be bucket, to lower in a well. Out around the edge of the city is where you would find the tanners, pushed there by rot. We who at the edge of the kingdom pulled dead from dead to sculpt the simplest repeated thing, now obsolete, leather buckets, to pull up out of the dark a cool shimmering surface to see yourself in, one single shimmering eye. This glimpse of myself bucket by bucket is what I am missing. The crumbs have been swept from the table, shaken from the skirts. The dates return to their containers, 
the last of the mourners gone. Homeland is where one's wake was held, and so no crueler word than return, no greater lie. The gates may open, but to return, more gates were built inside. I've learned the sound of nestlings being fed. Their mad chirping now clear in the trees I walk beneath. There are languages I didn't know I wanted to know. I've learned the sound of jets over Oakland for Fleet Week. Something about a nest. Something about a tree scared bald and shaken free so all its empty nests are exposed. Something about my neural pathways like that, like, I've decided, is the cruelest word. To step out of my door and hope to see something like a life, something passably me. Like the cage of canaries Bubba put out to sun in the Shiraz courtyard, the birds dropping dead onto the shit-covered newsprint when a cat slunk by. I prayed for the smallest happiness today, a pool of water in an Oakland pothole, a single likeness to see, feathers lifting, then shaking free, then something like a cat I became to frighten dead any hopeful thing. Some days I am almost happy, having never lived there, to lose even the loss. Some days, just to think, of washing some dishes, mismatched and in a rust-stained sink, touching things I have spent my whole life touching. Thank you. Um, first, it's a huge pleasure and honor to be here tonight with um, my favorite living poet, which begs the question, who is my favorite dead poet? And uh, it might be Elizabeth Bishop, but I think it's a, it's a, it's a draw between you two. So. Um, and also to be here with Sohrab, who is an old friend, but also someone whose work and thinking I've, I admire endlessly. Um, and it feels really apropos to be here tonight at the Carnegie Museum on the occasion of an exhibition that takes empire as its point of departure in some ways, um, as its animating conceit, um, uh, empire's legacies, its paradoxes, its overreaches. Um, and I think that was quite evident in some of the poems that, that Solmaz just read. Um, Solmaz is the poet of empire we always wanted but never had. Um, she's the poet of borders and airport terminals, immigration queues and checkpoints, of paradox, ambivalence, not knowing, selling out, bad dreams, dreams, power, powerlessness, uncertainty. What is language? Who gets to speak? What is the nation? What is home? And maybe most pertinently, what does it mean to stand outside and look in? These are some of the, animated, the questions that course through her poems and animate her work. She has called her work antagonistic. I think of my poems as laced with arsenic, she once said. Since I first came across her work in a residency space in Marfa, Texas a few years ago, I've, I've returned to them time and again. I'm always rattled. Solmaz's words are lyrical, brave, true, but always unsettling. They cut through you like a knife. 
they are not, in the artist Adrian Piper's words, a manifestation of what she called easy listening art, which is to say benign, consensus-driven, and polite. I might go as far as to call her poetry an art of discomfort. There's a word in Farsi that comes to mind when I think of these poems, which is not easy to translate, but it sort of evokes struggle or wrestling. Um, kalanjar. Hmm. Kalanjar, kardan, is to wrestle and struggle with something. Physical, but also one might suggest metaphorical and tangible. Words are her medium, but it should be said that in Solmaz's work, words are far from innocent. Her first collection, Look, um, as Sohrab pointed out, takes a Department of Defense wartime dictionary as its point of departure and subtly weaves in personal history while always, always laying bare the abuses of language. The term look, according to said dictionary, refers to a moment when a mind detonates. I'm sort of <laughs> condensing that. Um, words, in other words, can be bombs. They can maim and they can obfuscate like a mist. But they also, at best, have the ability to cast little beams of light, not to clarify per se, but maybe even to further confuse. But I want to suggest that this is a productive confusion. Solmaz's second and latest collection of poems, um, as you mentioned, is one that I hope we'll discuss this evening. It's called Customs. That's obviously a word that elicits a plethora of associations. Um, so Solmaz, again, I'm so happy to be here with you. Thank you. And, um, and perhaps we'll open with a deceptively straightforward question, sure. which is um, just to warm up, which is how did you find poetry or how did poetry find you? Mm, thank you for that question. Um, well, my, my mother, uh, I was a kid. Now I have to talk about my childhood. It's that thing they tell you never to do in a job interview because then you, you know, nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna take me seriously for the rest of this talk. But um, uh, poetry was big in my mom's life and um, remains big. And uh, in, in, in her own otherwise, I imagine she would have been a writer. Um, she read me poems, she had a typewriter and I really liked playing with the typewriter. And in particular, I liked hitting the enter key and I liked it just rolling up and the feeling of importance of that. And it always felt so uh, important, <laughs> that rolling and that taking up of space. And it was also this kind of private conversation that we would have as, as the poems that she would share with me, like Whitman or, you know, were a lot kind of you know raunchier, sexier um, than our conversation mm. would be face to face. So poetry for me was this kind of like side side conversation that you could have where anything could be said, and in fact everything must be said, um, even amongst two that don't say much about each other to each other. Um, and uh, I was also very lucky in terms of my undergraduate career at UC Berkeley. There was a program that was founded by the late poet and activist and scholar Jim Jordan um, called Poetry for the People. I enrolled in that pretty immediately upon my arrival on campus. And uh, I didn't know much about June. I just saw the words poetry and people together. And for me, my kind of political sensibility has always been wrapped up in, in writing and wanting to write. Um, so that was the turn I took and, and now here I am. Yeah. I wanted to speak next about place and mm. exile. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I read somewhere that you'd 
moved really consistently in your life. Like every four to five years, it had become a kind of ritual. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess this quality of being peripatetic, um, unsettled, forever a fresh arrival, always on the edge of something, mm -hmm. maybe ineffable, um, or homeless, mm -hmm. to evoke Edward Said, who I think is like a sort of a spiritual father hovering over this talk at some level. Mm -hmm. um, I guess this quality is especially manifest in the new collection, Customs. And, um, and I guess I wanted you to wonder or ask you um, if you can talk a little bit about how that sort of quality of restlessness or mm -hmm. withoutness mm -hmm. has, found, um, has found a place in your poetry. Mm -hmm. or, yeah. yeah um, I, I hate writing about place and I hate thinking about place, and it's one of the last things I, I, I notice. I think because it's such a painful reminder of my displacement, you know, it makes one confront one's displacement in a way that can't be ignored. Although I, I live in Phoenix now, and there's kind of no way to not notice the desert, you know? Um, and it's, it feels also like a bit of a demented um, Los Angeles, and, I, and I've spent a lot of like formative years in LA, and so now, now I'm just like walking through this weird inner like memory of what LA is or was, and it's making me think about place again. Um, but my greatest hope for language is that it remains restless um, and unhoused and unmoored um, and in continual kind of agitation which was my physiological reality, you know, and my physical reality, certainly, as a kid. Um, and, and so when I'm in a, in a good mood about moving a lot and a good mood about exile, I think about how this is kind of the, the truer existential reality of, of how we are as, as mortal beings. Um, and when I'm not in a good mood, I think it has its usefulness in terms of particularly revolutionary possibility, um, which requires that kind of constant agitation and unwillingness to allow language to come in and, and fix what is happening and demarcate what is happening and contain what is happening. So that, that kind of balance between the two, you know, my own dissatisfaction with language and feeling hemmed in by it and my desire to, to kind of reveal the more nomadic reality in which we are all living um, are at constant odds and a mm. central concern of my mm -hmm. writing, I'd say. Yeah. 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 I mean, it feels like the author of these poems is on a search of some sort. But, yeah. Um, but it's not a search for home. I mean, that's like a, right. that's a term that is, is loaded and... Um, and it's not nostalgia, because that's mm -hmm. like a, yeah, um, that's a different set of problems, mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. think. Um, but I guess my question is, what are you searching for, if anything? <laughs> and, is, and could the search and these gaps be your final destination in a way? And yeah. is, that, is this poetry sort of the, the sort of medium through which you're negotiating that? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And it's... Um, you know, I, I, I've said this in other interviews, um, but I'll say I came to poetry somewhat opportunistically, perhaps, you know, like I, there's, I could have 
done a number of things. Like I could have been a documentary filmmaker. I was a sociologist. I wanted to go to law school. There were a number of ways that one could maybe take on the DOD, right, or, or do the work that I wanted to do. Um, but there was something about the threads of the erotic and the elegy, um, eros and elegy, which gets worked out of every other medium, but is poetry's kind of like taproot, um, that I felt really insistent on, on staying close to. Um, and so my devotion ultimately is to poetry itself, you know, is to writing itself, um, even if I did come to it opportunistically. And I'm finding that that is changing me in ways that I can't quite control and I didn't anticipate. Mm -hmm. um, so whereas I, at first I was a kind of poet of the material world, uh, observational poet, you look at the thing, you describe the thing. My goal is actually to name the isness of the thing, right, and get as close and, and as like kind of accurate to that, to that thing as possible. Um, I have a lot of kind of like objectivist tendencies. Um, I have a lot of Poundian tendencies. I need to be aware of my own like fascism, in other mm -hmm. words, you know. Um, but through devotion to that kind of attention and bringing that attention to the material world, I noticed that that kind of attention started shifting and going further. Spatially, I think of it as back. I think of what is happening just behind the material world. Um, and I don't have words for that part mm -hmm. yet, but it feels like a type of music or frequency that a devotion of poetry can tune oneself to catch every once in a while. Mm. And I'm just trying to trace the exterior of that, you know, or the, or the blips that I do catch. Mm. Um, and I know that that will be all there is, right? There is no yeah. there, right? Um, there's no arrival, there's no home. Um, but there still is this sense of like getting closer, mm. kind of like scratching away at a thing that will ultimately give. Um, but yeah, I seem insistent on following. Yeah, and the once reason. in a while is important. It's not, yeah. you never reach that destination, mm -hmm. but it's, but you might mm -hmm. scratch at it. Or, yeah. yeah. I guess uh, I mentioned Edward Said, and um, mm -hmm. he said something, I think it was an essay on Adorno in the collection Reflections on Exile. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just going to read it. He he suggested that the world is full of ready-made forms, um, prefabricated homes, as it were. Everything is a commodity, even language. And to resist the state of affairs, he said, is the intellectual mission of the exile. And I've just been thinking about syntax and your particular syntax, this collection in particular, which is full of like fragments and fissures. And, um, and I just wondered if we could talk a little bit about um, both form, mm -hmm. but also you referenced in your introduction um, sort of writerly convention or you sort of mm -hmm. motion toward it. Mm -hmm. um, and I just wonder, can we speak of customs and of, I mean, to go back to the title of this essay collection, Customs, Customs in the Literary World, mm -hmm. um, and even your place amid them, mm -hmm. and even your calendar, mm -hmm. sort of like with them, how are you, um, yeah, how does, 
is it, is it a constant back and forth and sort of negotiation and struggle? Yeah, it is a constant back and forth and negotiation and, and um, it's difficult to not turn it into uh, kind of a reactionary, you know, yeah. um, and not let my aesthetics be, I mean, I am a creature of antagonism and my work certainly is, but I don't want the entirety of the work to be understood as such. Um, because I don't want my life ultimately to be prescribed um, by the powers that be as much as possible. I think with Look, there was a faith, uh, oh, how cute. There's like a faith and a kind of like data gathering or something, or if I just get the right names in front of people at the right moment, you know, and in the right context, then something would crack open. Um, we all know that that, or it's not true. Uh, and many people had already warned me that it's not true and that won't work, but I have to kind of put my hand on the stove myself. And, um, you know, and I, and I think there is this moment too, I, I was, was talking about, I was talking to a friend actually just an hour or two ago about this boom in uh, political work in poetry in particular, and this greater kind of diversity of voices that are being published, and I mean like racial, sexual, gender diversity. Um, and ultimately, I think as long as it remains about the nouns, um, it will not give us the change that we need. In other words, if, if nouns are being plugged into the sentences or the syntax that already exists, right? There's a new dean, there's a new provost, there's a new president, right? Um, it's not enough, right? And my question has always kind of been about the formal, under, our formal understandings of power and how we might kind of read into the syntax of power as it is playing out amongst our lives. And there are a lot of writers that have devoted themselves to kind of upending and upsetting syntax in order to become less consumable, you mm -hmm. know, less digestible. Um, I'm not sure that that's where my work is going necessarily. I think my work is just kind of, um, I know that I don't want, the, I don't want to write a sentence where if you mad lib it and it's about, and it becomes about Vienna, it feels good or normal, you know? Um, there has to be something that feels a little bit more this, you know, um, antagonistic, I guess. Um, and so that, that too, I think, is tied to this devotional practice of, of poetry, mm -hmm. wherein you start to kind of recognize more and more the shapes, the repetitive shapes and musics you know, that in my case actually govern our lives because my obsession is power, right? Um, one becomes more and more aware of them. And so I'm trying to kind of write, yeah, against those ready-mades. Yeah. Um, particularly because I don't hold on to a sense of like a spiritual grand design mm. that says that those, that ultimately there are only a set number of shapes that we, mm. you know. That's the thing I'm actually kind of wrestling with most right now. Yeah. yeah. As I say, I don't believe it, but... Yet, I don't know. Yeah. 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 You, you sort of gestured toward um, 
politically, it's hard to characterize politically engaged art, mm -hmm. politically engaged poetry. Mm -hmm. We're certainly seeing more diversity. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, uh, there's a sort of historically been a distrust of politically engaged art. Right. Um, and this sort of cliche, this belief that there's a trade-off between the topical, political, and the formal and the aesthetic. Mm -hmm. And um, I think your work obviously gives lie to that cliche. Um, in the past, you've quoted Adrienne Rich's poem, Dreamwood. Um, she says, poetry isn't revolution, but a way of knowing why it must come. Mm -hmm. And I guess, how do you see your work existing in that landscape of false binaries, but also in the political landscape? Um, how do we know? And what ways of knowing are available to us um, as humans, I guess? How do That's a tough one. Um, I'm gonna have to pause on that, but I am thinking, I am thinking about this kind of false binary and my own, you know, that sense of ready-madeness, you know, and there have been, frankly, like a number of fair weather kind of political poets in my time I've seen, and I feel the, the tides are turning again, and obviously this is always a pendulum, and so there will be that kind of reaction against the, the diversity and, and politicization that we've seen of, of art making and of, of writing in recent years. Um, it, it is and will rear its head again. Um, I actually noticed that, you know, during, during that Trump era, in that 2016 moment where there was a kind of panic, the, the critics that, that would call political work lesser work because mm -hmm. it, uh, puts content ahead of form, right, which is often a poor reading of the, of the work, obviously, but um, we're kind of scrambling to find someone to make sense of this moment. Like, all of a sudden, it was like, where are our poets? You know, where are our artists that will guide us through this? And um, I found my work get a lot more quiet, mm. actually, you know, because I feel ultimately that the, that the poet is some sort of, like, guardian of what is not being turned to or cared for, for whatever reason. What is being seen as, as too small or too irrelevant. Right. Um, and so when there's all this noise, right, yeah. it's like, why do I have to name the emergency? We're all in it right now, you know? Yeah. You don't, we don't need somebody to name it. I wanna talk about the ways that we're not, what we're, we're, what we're not kind of looking at. And so to go back to our ways of knowing and not knowing, I, I think, I don't know, the, the best, I tend to think really visually, so whatever this experience means to people, I remember there being an eclipse over Palo Alto, and I was walking to a Starbucks, and um, the eclipse was physically happening, and I noticed that I was looking up at, at eye level, and I don't do that usually, and I was like, why am I doing that? And then I saw that everyone else was looking up at the sky, right? And I was like, oh, that's why I'm doing it, you know? And then I was like, somebody has to keep guard of the eye level right now. You know, usually mm -hmm. I'm watching the ground and like, what's the trash? And like, how do I, you know? Um, or else um, being on a bus and looking up Google Maps and, and, and it being satellite view and next to the bus where I happen to be is a satellite view of a penitentiary. And you see men walking the yard and these long shadows, right? So like, 
just spatially, like if we expand our scope a little bit or, or even, or make it smaller in that moment, you know, whatever is not happening to keep one's guard toward that and attention toward that is I think the kind of knowing that we need more and more of. I guess, I'm, and, and look came out just before that moment. The unnameable, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't even want to say his name. But, yeah. um, but the noise that you gesture toward. Yes. And would you say like you sort of retreated at that moment to... Yes. You, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Writing became... Yeah. 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 I mean, you can say that your work was prophetic in many ways. Yeah. But, I mean, it felt extremely on point. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to just transition to uh, one of the conceits in customs is the epistolary form. And mm-hmm. there's a series of Dear Aleph letters, mm-hmm. one of which I had the privilege of publishing yes. a couple years ago. I wonder if you could read... Um, sure. That one with yeah. Ethel Rosenberg, and uh, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about maybe ask you about the epistolary form, which in some sometimes is viewed as sort of the quintessential form of the exile, the mm-hmm. format for the exile. Mm-hmm. Um, but also um, talk a little bit about empathy in the context of that poem. Sure. Yeah. Uh, the poem is Dear Aleph. You're correct, every nation hates its children. This is a requirement of statehood, this and empathy. Empathy means laying yourself down in someone else's chalk lines and snapping a photo. A Chrysler with four bullet holes in the rear passenger door just drove by calmly, signaling before it turned. Oh, Mrs. Evans, you're such a wonderful woman, said supposedly. Ethel Rosenberg to the woman who walked her to the chair. It was empathy on Evans's part, love on Ethel's. I'm a wonderful woman more often than I care to admit. We are going to have our first woman president. Mm. That's beautiful. Thank you. I just wondered, um, vis-a-vis empathy, I wondered if you could riff a little bit or think with me a little bit about its value, but it's also its limits. Yeah. Um, and... You know, is it possible to articulate or to tap into someone else's art, uh, suffering mm-hmm. and interior worlds? Right. And that feels like it's, it's a sort of question that animates a lot of yeah. these poems. Yeah. Um, the value of empathy is is kind of is almost like occupational. You know, I mean, it, it's useful in therapy offices, uh, police training. Um, if you really want to know how to interrogate someone, you have to have empathy. Um, it's useful in kind of lubricating state-sponsored violence. Um, you know, it's no, it's no coincidence that when Marilyn Robinson and President Barack Obama sit and, and talk about the relationship between literature and citizenship, the word that keeps coming up is empathy right, and not, not love, right? Um, empathy is what allows one to keep a kill list um, and, and remain functional, right? Um, and um, I was teaching in, in 2014, I was teaching a workshop and I was asking for more empathy in a poem and then I stopped myself because I was like, why am I using this word? You know, I'm using it because I've heard it used, you know, and then I, I said, you know, actually the word I mean is love, mm-hmm. but like, it feels really corny to say you need to love this person in the poem more, you know. But if if we're actually talking about writing and of of being, 
with each other. Like, that is what it is. Um, and I think when one loves, one is mm, boundless and unboundaried, right? So there isn't this sense of, like, stepping into another and then stepping out of another, or, you know, it, there's, there's no sense of leaving the other, you know? Um, there's a sense of whelm and overwhelm, and I think all of these things are necessary in order to write um, of somebody else's suffering, which I think is possible. And I think not only possible, but a part of my duty, actually, is to imagine and be willing to figure out, which requires a lot of work and study, how to write outside of myself, mm. you know? I don't believe a self exists, right? But I think that's, like, also a little bit too easy of a, like, theoretical answer. Mm. Um, I think that that moment of, like, Ahmetova standing outside a prison and somebody, you know, in line waiting to go in and see her son, mm -hmm. somebody turning to her and saying, can you describe this in one of her po in mm -hmm. your poems? And she says, yes. Like, I, I want to do the yes, you know? I don't want to do the no, it's impossible, it's too problematic, it won't be real, it's just reinscribing violence. It's just, you know, that, that's not, I'm thinking about who is it that's writing the yes? Because I know I've needed that yes mm -hmm. in my life. Mm -hmm. And I know that I've been around people that have needed that yes. And I know at the very end, you know, in those carceral moments, there is that feeling of like, please tell someone. Please let them know this is happening, you know? And also get this word to my mom, mm -hmm. right? And like, those are, those are the... Those are the modes of speech and of speaking to each other that I want to prepare myself for. Letters. We were talking about letters, yeah, right? Yeah. And Dear Aleph, which is the first letter of the Arabic, Farsi, and Hebrew mm -hmm. alphabets. How did that... I mean, it has to do... For me, it's like partly about the prison stories that I grew up with and partly about being raised uh, outside of the country and... Um, in the 80s, and, you know, phone calls are very expensive. Uh, so uh, we would kind of mail letters, but more often than not, actually, we would, um, which was not often at all, maybe like once or twice a year, we would mail like a cassette tape, you know? So there's like a cassette tape recording of like just my mom saying like, Sonma is six months old, laughing, and then it's like five minutes of her tickling me so her mom and sister could, could hear and get a sense of like, who I even am or what I am. Um, and the, the, the kind of like smallness and ordinariness of it, but the change in the quality of attention that's brought to its scarcity, you know. When one doesn't have too much information, one is really pouring over what one does get, right? And there's a lot more pressure on what is getting out. Mm. But interestingly enough, that pressure means not like, Yesterday, Solmaz did this thing, and then today she's doing this thing, and then, to, you know, it becomes like this small, like, what is, the, what is the thing that you miss, right? The thing that you miss after you've spent days with someone, not in that first gush of, like, trying to catch each other, each, each other up on the data. I think often about prisons and, like, only being allowed a sheet of paper or not allowed paper. You know, I think about... Uh, people who inscribe, you know, 
just various ways of inscription to get words down, mm. to get word out, you know, even if it is just out of self and you know it will not reach someone. Do you still have those cassettes in the family? I do. That's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the carceral comes up a lot yeah. in your work. And mm-hmm. I were these, um, and you don't have to answer this question, but were these um, like friends, comrades, family members who were in prison it, in, under this regime or in Iran? Or oh, both. Yeah. Any, take your pick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, and that notion of also a poem being something, I mean, just like I'm jumping, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, when you're, uh, when you're robbed of all your possessions, but if the, you know, the richness of memorization of poems in a carceral context is, is kind of a miracle, isn't it? Absolutely. You take that with you. Yeah. There was one line in the poem that you just read, um, empathy means laying yourself down in someone else's chalk lines and snapping a photo. And the snapping a photo part made me, through me, it always throws me off mm-hmm. because it, 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 I think it injects a bit of cynicism or, or mm-hmm. does it not? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Of just like aestheticizing suffering or, mm-hmm. or the token gesture, but am I, am I really Yeah, wrong? yeah, aestheticizing suffering, the kind of, yeah, the performance of it, mm. um, the need to share that one tried to understand a, a suffering moment, you yeah. know? I mean, I, I guess my, my question is like, how much of, how much of, how much of your of your love is being publicly performed, right? And right. how much of it is is right. a kind of more private devotional act? Yeah, you know, around which the rest of your work is built. Yeah, yeah. But I also just wanted to ask you um, that feeling of being on the edge of a language that could have been your mother. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know the, the the strict definition of mother tongue, but um, but that could have been your most fluent sort of you know. Um, primal language Mm -hmm. and I just wonder if that's and that's something that sort of is intimated throughout Mm -hmm. customs in particular and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that your relationship to um, the poem without which is very much about you know the person you would have been Mm -hmm. could have been had political circumstances turned out differently Mm -hmm. this collision of forces that left you in different places in the United States and here today yeah, which is the case for many of us. Sure. Um, you know, I, I, I have had, and I, I can, I'm still prone to having some kind of like romanticized and frankly nostalgic idea that there is this, there is this language within which I would be um, more comfortable um, and more at home, and I would be addressing those that I most want to address. You know, I think that's one of the cruelties of English is that for me, it it will necessarily always be outward facing, right? Um, I am not necessarily addressing an Iranian audience, right? So sometimes I I return to that, but I think it's ultimately my dissatisfaction and discomfort with English, which is like the language of my dispossession that has made me a poet. I don't think I would be a poet in Farsi you know, if that romantic idea were true. I think there's something about um, wanting to keep rearranging and breaking and breaking um, that made me have to be a poet in this language mm-hmm. um, in order to survive the language. Um, That's interesting. But I think in the past, I have thought that I would, I would write better poems in, in Farsi, you know? Um, I would think more clearly and I would, yeah. I would just be 
just be a better human. Yeah. Okay. You know, run five miles in the morning. Or whatever. But I don't think that's true. Yeah. But this idea that 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 dissatisfaction or that desire, that distance, made you a poet is fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Um, couple things about customs, it ends, um, it just ends, like, mm -hmm. without a full sentence. Um, the last line is, I pass through there mm -hmm. so that. Um, I just wonder if, maybe without getting too deeply into that poem, I just wonder why you had to, you, you didn't end, mm -hmm. effectively. Um, and I wonder if, you can tell us a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. And then maybe I'm just lumping in one more question, which is in the acknowledgments, um, you thank many people, institutions, and also fear. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about fear. So either one of those questions, I would be Thank curious you. to. Um, I mentioned earlier that I'm a diagnostic poet. Um, and what that means is just quite simply trying to name what is rather than change what is. Um, and, a, and a faith that in the naming, eventually the change will come outside of the poem, in the reader, with the readers, among readers. Um, but the changing happened within myself through this, through this mode. And uh, I found that I don't, I didn't want to keep naming the same things, right? I didn't want to keep naming the material world that I was seeing. I didn't want to keep naming compromise and foreclosure and all, you know, like how many times can I name it? And actually I'm thinking of like the arc of Furu's titles of her books, you know, and like this kind of, it's a, it's, it's a pretty typical, I guess, journey for a writer to go through of the kind of like enclosed, closed, foreclosed captivity of earlier work. Um, in which one proves oneself or um, lays out one's like intellectual project in a sound way, you know, prove your mastery over it. And then the moving into the, so that, you know, the moving into, in, moving toward, honestly, the revolutionary gesture and what might it mean to start to name things that are not materially true yet, but are possible and can come. Um, and in my head, the So That is operating as the title of the next collection. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm actively writing toward it, even if that doesn't end up being the title. Right. Um, right. But I also liked the, the idea of the book kind of dissolving into white, is, is how I pictured it, mm -hmm. um, rather than offering a, a closure, because mm -hmm. that's what it felt like, honestly, to write it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. That's beautiful. Fear? Fear. Um, yeah, I'm done. I don't know. You know, I think it's still there, but I think there's just, there were mentors I didn't want to upset, dinner, dinner parties that I needed to behave at, and, you know, trying to figure out how to navigate it, and a lot of smiling, and, you know, um, and in the work, too, and, and I kind of enjoyed, you know, this kind of, like, forced smile with, like, blood kind of coming out was the tone as I, or the affect as I experienced it. Um, but I think I'm, I'm, I just feel um, honed by it, by the fear. I, I feel like I've sharpened myself against it enough and I'm, I'm ready to move on. Thank you for listening. This has been Artists in the World, brought to you by WQED and Carnegie Museum of Art. To learn more about this episode, please visit 
cmoa.org slash artists in the world. And don't forget to subscribe. More is coming soon.